Well, good morning. If we haven't uh, met, my name is Greg. I serve as one of the pastors here at Midtown Community Church. And this morning, we're continuing our Advent teaching series through the first two chapters of Matthew. We're looking at, this morning, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 2. If you're using one of the, uh, the black hardcover Bibles in the pew nearby, um, we'll be on page 855. So, the world-renowned movie, Talladega Nights, (laughs) The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, tells the story of Ricky Bobby, an arrogant, fictional NASCAR driver played by Will Ferrell. And in this cinematic masterpiece, there is this particular scene where Ricky Bobby is sitting around the dinner table with his family, and despite their groans, He insists again and again throughout the prayer on referring to Jesus as dear Lord baby Jesus. My wife has told me that I'm not allowed to play the clip for you, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Even when uh, Ricky Bobby's wife tells him, hey, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. He had a beard and everything. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. He still insists on calling him baby. And the prayer ends by Ricky Bobby saying this, quote, Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant and so cuddly, but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million, love that money, that I have accrued over this past season. Also, due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mention Powerade at every grace, I just want to say that Powerade is delicious, and it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Thank you all for your pow- thank you for your, all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. Now, is this like mildly sacrilegious? Maybe. Is it is it hilarious? Absolutely. And I would submit to you that in a strange way, our text in Matthew 2 is actually no less sacrilegious. Matthew's audience would have been aghast hearing for the first time that not only are we to worship a child, but that the very first people in Matthew's gospel to worship this child are pagans. Not God's people, pagans. The outrageous idea of pagans praying to a child is exactly what our text is about this morning. So you can think of Matthew 2 as like the original Talladega Nights with just a little bit less NASCAR and Powerade. So I invite you now to listen with open ears as I read from this book that we love. This is God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the, same, the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Will you pray with me? Father, as we approach your gospel this morning, show us the scandal of a baby being worshipped by pagans. Show us the scandal of your upside-down kingdom. Show us the scandal of what it means to worship a child. In Jesus Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. The striking claim that our text makes in narrative form is that there was a child who is worthy of worship. And throughout the narrative, we find different responses to this kind of idea. And so that's going to be the outline for this morning. We're going to look at the three different responses that we find in our text to worshiping Jesus. First, the Magi. Second, the priests. And third, Herod. Uh, let's first talk about the Magi. So the, the most prominent response to Jesus that we see in our text is from the Magi. Now, before we get into talking about the Magi, I want to talk for a second about what's called the illusory truth effect. The illusory truth effect is a term psychologists use to describe our tendency to accept ideas as fact merely because they've been repeated to us multiple times. Right? It's, it's, this is the reason that many of us in here still feel deep down like bubble gum will stay in our stomachs for like seven years after we eat it. It's also the reason that, most, that we believe that most of our heat in our body is lost through our head or that swimming after eating is bad or that going outside without a jacket can make you sick or if you shave your beard frequently, it'll grow back quicker and thicker or that there were three wise kings at Jesus' birth. But none of these things are true, right? My little brother once ate, and I'm not exaggerating, 60, 60 of those little double bubble, those blue and yellow pieces of gum, 60 of those in an evening. He had some weird poops, but he's fine, <laughs> physically anyway. S swimming after eating is perfectly fine. Viruses cause sickness, not the cold. We lose at most 10% of our heat through our head. And sadly, no amount of shaving my face again and again is going to have my beard grow back any less patchy. We can't all be Ben Bechtel. <laughs> and there were not three kings at Jesus' birth. Sorry to go all mythbusters on unitivity sets, but that's historically inaccurate. Look, first, we're never told in the narrative that there are three of them. Right? They give three gifts, but that doesn't mean anything. I'm going to give my son three gifts for Christmas, but I'm not three people. There's no, like, one gift per person rule. Likely, there were dozens of magi that entered Jerusalem. This is why all of Jerusalem is disturbed. They think they're being invaded. Secondly, they were not there on the night when Jesus was born. So look at verse 11. They were told that they enter what? A house. 
And Jesus wasn't born in a house. He was likely born in like the the little guest room off the back of the house. But here, they're in a house. In next week's text, Herod is going to put to death any child up to two years old, which means that Jesus, at this point in time, could have been anywhere up to two. This idea that we have of like wise men with the shepherds all together with the animals in some sort of like barn stable kind of thing isn't what happened. They're in a house at this point in time. Thirdly, uh, they were not kings. Now, the Magi were likely very wealthy and of a high social order. We can kind of infer this from the text because they give very expensive gifts. They have the vocational leisure to be able to travel a good distance on a whim. And they're given the audience of a king. But the term Magi is not a term for a king. It's a term for an ancient Eastern intellectual. These are astrologers. These wise men are more like eccentric Harvard philosophy professors than they are kings. When we think of the Magi, we should think more like tweed jackets, oversized glasses, and pocket protectors than we do long purple robes, crowns, and jewels. They weren't three of them. They weren't there when Jesus was born, and they definitely were not kings. Now, does this mean that we should all go home after this snatch our nativity sets off our grandmother's mantle and burn them in the front yard. No. Like, there is some, like, very, very wise theological truth to the nativity sets of, like, one example would be um, having the wealthy magi and the dirt-poor shepherds in the same place bowing before the same infant king. That's theologically meaningful, even if it is historically unfounded entirely. Um, We probably should stop singing We Three Kings, though. (laughs) That song is terrible. Um, So these eccentric pagan professors see a star in the sky, probably somewhere in Persia, and they decide to follow it. What brings up yet another logistical question. What exactly did these astrologers see? Now, some scholars will try to provide, like, scientific astronomical rationale for, like, how this could have happened. Some people will say, like, this is a nova. Maybe it's a supernova. Perhaps it's a, uh, it's a, uh, like, a planetary conjunction. We know that in the year 7 BC, the planets Jupiter and Saturn lined up, like, at least three times throughout the year and, and shone extra bright in the sky. Maybe that's what they saw. Or Halley's Comet kind of happened somewhere around that time. Maybe they saw a comet. Other scholars say that it was some like a, a sort of supernatural occurrence. Maybe it was a star, but not one that we have record of that just kind of appeared there, bobbed throughout the sky and then disappeared. Or maybe it was an angel who shone really brightly in the sky but wasn't really a star. Uh, my personal conclusion after spending all week reading about this is, um, I don't know, uh, and I'm sick of reading about it, and I don't think it matters that much anyway. The point of the story is not what kind of star it was, but that these are pagans. These are pagan intellectuals using pagan techniques. Notice this. They don't find the Messiah during their morning, like, quiet time as they read the Bible with a Hillsong playlist quietly in the background. They're practicing astrology. A practice condemned by the Bible. These are pagans finding the Messiah with pagan means. And somehow they stumble into the mystery of the incarnation. The least likely characters in this story to find the Messiah are at the end of it the only ones who do. And when they do, 
They bow on their faces before him in worship, giving him gifts fit for a king. The scandal of this story is that the very first people to worship Jesus in Matthew's gospel aren't God's people, but are pagans, using what would be more similar to a Ouija board than reading the Bible. That's the Magi's response. Next, let's look at the priests. So the second response we see is in verse 4, right? When Herod hears that, oh, there there are all these wise men in town to see this new king, he goes in verse 4 and he says, he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asks them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, notice just a few things about this. First, these are the chief priests, the high priests and the scribes. These are people who do religion as a job. They're they're experts in their field. These are no theological hobbyists, and they're definitely no pagan astrologers like the Magi. I would say that they're like the religious PhDs of the day, but that would probably be an understatement. If anyone were to know about the Messiah and then worship him, it should be them. These people knew the scriptures inside and out. They're the best of the best. And so when Herod, a king, comes to them and says, where is the Messiah going to be born? It's no surprise that they not only without hesitation retort in Bethlehem of Judea, but they also immediately follow that up by quoting, probably from memory, Micah 5 verse 2. These are scriptural specialists who know that a Messiah is going to be born can cite the scripture about his birth from memory and who don't even bother journeying the mere five miles it would have taken to go and worship him. The Messiah has practically come to their backyard. All they had to do is call in sick and take a day trip. But instead, the chief priests, the scribes, tell Herod about the Messiah Word for word, quote Micah 5, 2, and then go indifferently back to business as usual, and we don't hear about them in the narrative after this. The people who could fluently articulate biblical prophecy ended up at the end of our narrative yawning about it when it came true. So what was their problem? Well, the problem with these religious gurus is not that they're apathetic, or indifferent, generally speaking, right? They are experts when it comes to religious zeal. The problem is that their religious zeal is woefully misplaced. They've directed their passion toward the texts, the liturgies, the sacrifices, the rites and rituals of the temple more than the fulfillment of those things so that when Jesus Christ comes and knocks on their front door, they can hear him knocking, they can acknowledge what's happening, but they never go and bother to answer it. And this can sound like mind-numbingly stupid. But I would be willing to bet that you have done the same thing. I have. I was the kid, right, in middle school with the Bible that looked like it had been attacked by wolves, like if the wolves had highlighters for teeth. Church camp in the summers, youth group on Wednesdays, Sunday school, FCA, see you at the poll, 30-hour famine. And I, just like these priests, had a deep zeal, a deep passion. But it was a misplaced, pharisaical passion that confused being zealous for the things of God 
with being zealous for God himself. Honestly, I, I had more of a passion for like Christian culture than I did Christ. And so it was no surprise when a few years later I began seeing the errors and the abuses of the culture in which I was raised and came to the conclusion that like, oh, this is hollow at best and most likely rotten. That then is like my faith fell apart and was sent into a tailspin of confusion because the thing that I lived for, I now realized was empty. And I imagine that these priests who, you know, they do their little scripture memory verse and then go on their way could have, I'm just speculating, they could have had a similar experience years later. Where years after this, they look down at the rites and the rituals, they look at their temple, and they say to themselves, like, we missed it. We were so passionate about the wrong thing. So Midtown Community Church, what are you spiritually passionate about? Right? Toward what end is your religious zeal oriented? Is it the living Jesus? Or is it like your Bible plan, theology podcasts, your apologetics, your church plants? If your religious zeal is primarily directed here toward Midtown Community Church, it is in the wrong place because this is a place that will eventually, if it hasn't yet, let you down in tremendous ways. A passion for spiritual things is a deadly thing to have if the animating center of it is not Jesus himself. Or in the words of Jesus, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life but it's they that bear witness about me. So the priests, like many of us, respond to the birth of Jesus with an apathetic indifference because they're too preoccupied with studying him. The Magi respond with worship, the priests with indifference. Finally, let's look at Herod's response. So when Herod hears from the Magi that a king's been born, he does two different things. First, he assembles a group of religious scholars and says, hey, dig around in your Bibles. Tell me um, where the Messiah is going to be born. And when they get back to him and they say, we're pretty sure it's Bethlehem, he does a second thing. He arranges this backdoor meeting with this group of Magi and, and tells them, hey, listen, Magi, when you find Jesus, let me know where he is so that I too can go and kill, I mean, worship him. Herod is so threatened by the existence of this toddler, he devises a plan to have him killed. Perhaps Herod is threatened by Jesus' birth because Herod's father was not a king, right? Herod had no ancestral claim to royalty, so the existence of one who was king at his birth would be especially insulting. Or perhaps Herod is simply threatened by Jesus because a king walking into the room and proclaiming that he is a king is good news for everybody in that room except for the current king. In any case, Herod responds to the arrival of the best news this world has ever seen with schemes, hatred, and violence directed at toddlers. And it might seem, right, at first glance, that none of us here are really at risk of responding in the way that Herod does. But at risk of offending you, I actually think we all are. Now, not in the sense that we have some sort of like inner proclivity to be like ruthlessly violent monarchs, but in the sense that each and every one of us in an area of our lives are resistant to giving up our autonomy and bowing to Jesus like King Jesus demands.
the pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, in every, little, in every heart, there is a little King Herod who wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that might compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. In our world, right, any obedience to an external authority is seen as limiting to human flourishing, not the pathway to it. We, like Herod, don't want to be ruled by anyone, but want to be the rulers ourselves, at least over our own lives, which is why every single one of us finds it really easy to follow Jesus when it's convenient. Like when you can look at a command of Jesus and say, yeah, I agree with that. That's the way to a, flourish, a flourishing life. It's easy to follow Jesus there. But in the, the question would be, in the areas of your life where you don't agree with Jesus, where you question his judgment, where you think he's being probably just a little bit too nitpicky and restrictive about that one thing, or where you just don't understand, in those areas of your life, how do you respond? There is a miniature Herod in all of us that wants Jesus off the throne of our lives and just to leave us alone. Now, in the study of literature, there is this technique called character antithesis juxtaposition. Uh, this is when an author will write two stories or two characters into a story who like appear together side by side but are incredibly different from one another. Authors often do this to highlight the moral failings of one or the successes of another. An example of this type of literary juxtaposition would be in uh, Harry Potter, right? So when juxtaposed with his prick of a cousin Dudley, Harry comes across as all the more likable, all the more humble, all the more kind, right? The same thing is kind of done with like Cinderella and her wicked stepsisters. Two characters, two kinds of characters written side by side into a story to highlight their differences. This is what Matthew is doing with Herod and Jesus. Notice this, right? Herod is called a king, Right? He's Dudley, if Dudley were made a king. He's a ruler known and feared for his brutality. In the closing years of Herod's reign, he executes three of his own sons. Caesar Augustus is even reported to have quipped, I'd rather be a pig in Herod's house than one of his sons. Because he is so ruthlessly self-protective that not even his own family is safe if they begin to threaten his reign. Next week, again, we're going to read that he's so insistent on maintaining control and staying in power, that he's going to order every male under the age of two to be put to death. But Jesus is also described as a king in our text. So look at the end of verse 1, where from the lips of pagan philosophers, Jesus is proclaimed to be king of the Jews. This phrase, king of the Jews, is a significant phrase for Matthew. Right, the, the phrase bookends Matthew's gospel. It, begins, it occurs right here at the beginning in Matthew chapter 2 and then, and then at the very end in Matthew chapter 27 and doesn't occur anywhere in between. It's used here at the beginning to describe Jesus' birth and then the next time this phrase is used will be of Pilate when Jesus is on trial and Pilate will ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus will answer, you say so. Moments later, a crown of thorns will be twisted around Jesus' head. He'll be nailed to a cross. And a sign will be hung above his head. 
that will read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The same phrase uttered by the Magi in Matthew 2 will hang over Jesus' head at his crucifixion in Matthew 27. And Matthew writes this into his narrative to show us. There is Herod, King Herod, and then there is Jesus. Two kings, two kingdoms, two rulers, and wildly different in almost every respect. Herod is a wealthy ruler reigning in Jerusalem. Jesus is a peasant, refugee child, born in the unimpressive honky-tonk town of Bethlehem. Herod uses his power to exploit others and maintain control. Jesus uses his power to heal others. Herod takes innocent lives to protect and expand his kingdom. Jesus protects and expands his kingdom, but by giving his own innocent life. Herod is thoroughly paranoid and self-protective. Jesus is secure and thoroughly self-sacrificial. Herod seems in the world's eyes to be powerful and strong. Jesus seems in the world's eyes to be weak and small and unimpressive. Two kings, two kingdoms, and both of these kings die. But only Herod stays dead. Matthew juxtaposes these kings as if to say, Herod is a phony king whose kingdom of power and aggression will die with him. And Jesus' upside-down kingdom of self-sacrifice, love, and forgiveness is alive and well, and it is a matter of very short time before every knee, Herod's included, will bow before him. The question Matthew wants us to ask ourselves as we read these different responses is this. Church, which one are you this Advent season? The first step on the pathway to spiritual maturity is honesty. Taking off our mask of faux religiosity and just being real. If you're honest, which one are you? Magi, priests, Herod. Really, we're probably all a complex mixture of all three of these. So in what areas of your life are you a magi? Ready to give him everything and bow to a child king. In what areas are you a priest? Religiously passionate, but when it comes to the actual story of Jesus, just kind of indifferent. In what areas of your life do you have a, a miniature King Herod resisting the lordship of Jesus? See, the outrageous claim that Christianity makes every year at Christmas time is that the way to a flourishing life, like the way to life in the full, counterintuitively is actually to take fairly seriously that prayer in Talladega Nights and bow to a helpless child, Jesus. Because through this child comes a kingdom of peace, forgiveness, and grace. So will you worship him? Will you worship him? You don't have to have your theology perfect. The Magi sure didn't. You don't have to have your act together and have a pretty life that's really presentable. Nobody does. You don't even have to be ready to like lay your life down and give him everything. Because he's not a king like Herod. He is a greater king than Herod. He's a greater king than Herod could ever have dreamed of being. And he will accept your worship whenever you're ready to give it. Will you pray with me?
Father, as we come forward to take your supper once again, would you re-inscribe on our hearts the truth of the kingdom to which we belong? Remind us of our small, unimpressive Savior who was born of a virgin, placed in a feeding trough for animals in the little town of Bethlehem. Our Savior who was crucified on a cross next to criminals, who died in our place, who more than that has raised from the grave and who will one day come back and make everything new and his kingdom of peace will fill the earth. Remind us of these truths, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.